in the spirit of reconciliation. Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. I think your starting question with what does commerciality mean is the right one because it's a term that gets bandied around all the time and I suspect somehow as a shorthand for give us what we need. But from my perspective, commerciality means really give us what, what we need, not give us what we want. Welcome to On Just Terms. In this series, we look at the changing nature of corporate risk in Australia by speaking to the people at the front line of Australian litigation who will shape the future of the Australian legal risk landscape. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Bryony Adams and Aoife Zureb, who are both partners here at Herbert Smith Freehills. Bryony is a litigation partner based here in Sydney, working frequently with clients in highly regulated industries and with a focus on AML CTF matters. IFA is an experienced commercial litigation partner with expertise in defending class actions and product liability litigation. In today's episode, we'll discuss emerging themes in the litigation and regulatory contexts, perspectives on product liability and AML CTF, and the meaning of commerciality for litigators. Aoife, Bryony, thank you so much for being gracious with your time and joining us on our podcast episode. It's great to have you here. Pleasure. Pleasure. We've been exploring uh, the changing litigation and regulatory landscape in Australia. I know you both well, and so I know that between the two of you, you account for a significant amount of complex litigation, including in the regulatory space. I wanted to start general, and maybe with you, Aoife, talk about what you are seeing in terms of the current Australian litigation and regulatory landscape. Where are we going next? I think, Jason, what we're particularly interested in is observing some of those overseas trends in emerging areas, so particularly the ESG space and cyber and data. So whilst we can learn quite a bit from what's happening overseas and observing some of those trends, there are obviously some specific um, issues presented by the Australian regime. And I'm particularly interested to see how the framework that we're dealing with here, both the class action regime and just our general commercial litigation framework, um, responds to some of those risks and um, how some of that litigation will peter out over the, the next few months and years. Just on a follow up on that, are you seeing more, you're, you have a subspecialty in product liability class action litigation, more globalisation of those pieces of litigation. So while it's always been true that we follow in a sense the United States, my sense is we're seeing that even more now than we once did. We are particularly in certain areas. One key distinction between the US regime and the Australian regime, which is particularly relevant to the product liability space, is the absence of a certification requirement in Australia. So um, in Australia, class actions here are relatively easy to commence. They do tend to observe and follow what's happening in the US and the ease with which those proceedings can be commenced um, is even more enhanced when you compare it with the US regime and the absence of a certification requirement here. I think it's fair to say that sometimes the simplicity with which a US proceeding can be transplanted into the Australian regime can sometimes be um, assumed to be easier than it actually is. And once we are in, once we're in the midst of those proceedings in Australia, often those distinctions and differences from an evidentiary perspective in particular become more apparent. 
And Ronnie, I will come to your deep specialism <laughs> in AMLCTF regulatory and contentious work in a moment, but just again, starting quite general, as you're sitting on the balcony, what are you seeing in the Australian landscape? Happily, there's a link. Um, so, like Eva said, I think we're taking a good look at what's happening overseas um, and, and bringing what is already um, the standard busy practice that we have here in class actions and regulatory action, but bringing into that some very specific areas of focus. I think the main one for me is ESG um, and particularly the SG aspect of that, uh, which I think traditionally hasn't been looked at as much, but really is focused on understanding social responsibility, corporate responsibility, and what that means for, for corporates in terms of their governance processes and in terms of um, um, litigants seeking to hold them to account um, in, in the new world. And I say that, that there's a link between that and the AML because part of that responsibility is holding um, corporates to account for things like modern slavery, financial crime, um, and all these sorts of issues that would previously perhaps have been thought of as compliance issues that are important um, from a regulatory perspective, but are now being repurposed um, as important for shareholders and important um, sort of top level issues um, to be considered. Is that emblematic of the fact that shareholders, consumers generally, they now equate the value of an organisation with its S and G compliance or being a good corporate citizen in that space? I think that's right, that the, the being a good corporate citizen hasn't become, not suggesting that it was, but isn't the nice to have, but is in fact the essence of what's required. And so when you're looking at your compliance, you're looking at it now, I think really holistically, including what does this mean for the world in which we're operating and how are people going to react to it and are we doing the right thing? Um, and all of that means that from top level down, there's much more of a sort of nuanced focus on compliance and, and the importance of it. So let me ask you both a related question building on that foundation. You, you both spend a lot of time with directors. You both sit in boards advising them on critical litigation risk, broader reputational risk. Um, if we are surveying boardrooms across Australia generally at the moment, what would you say are the issues that are top five in the in the critical risk category and what's keeping directors and officers up at, up at night in terms of their risk and litigation environment, maybe starting with you, Aoife? Sure. Um, I think from a disclosure perspective and sort of marrying up developments in the ESG space and some of the uncertainty that still remains in the ESG space with what that means from a disclosure perspective is one area that seems to be of keen interest and of key concern for a range of clients across various industries and sectors. And there are a couple of reasons for that. From a class action perspective, there have been some really interesting jurisprudential developments in terms of um, the idea of a constructive opinion, what that actually means in terms of the ingress of information into the organisation, um, the sitting of that information within particular pockets or teams within the organisation, for example, and the extent to which that's actually reaching relevant decision makers and being considered um, by the, the strategic team and the board. So there are those sort of really interesting jurisprudential developments. They're relatively recent, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, a lot of the, the legal industry is grappling with what that means, and particularly from a disclosure perspective and um, from a corporate governance perspective in terms of, you know, practically speaking, what does that mean for our organisation? And so, sorry to interrupt, but post-Royal Commission, you're, you're sort of reflecting on the fact that there's a greater emphasis on 
how information's flowing to the disclosure stage and is there enough challenge on from the boards to management and those themes that we're now pretty familiar Precisely. with. Precisely. And in fact, you know, sort of testing as well, you know, who's actually testing those um, corporate governance processes, how um, transparent are those processes and is there sort of sufficient testing of the information that's coming in and when does it get to the point of it being um, sufficiently clear and certain that it's raising disclosure type issues. And Bronnie, similarly, you're probably seeing I suppose you don't make the boardroom until there's something that's pretty significant <laughs> that needs to be managed. So what, what do you say are the issues that are keeping boards awake and alert? That's right. I tend to see boards when there's already a crisis. Um, but I think there is a real focus. There's always been a focus on risk. Of course, companies are focused on managing risk and understanding it. But now I think the focus is more on how is that achievable? What is the new standard at which boards are expected to operate on? There seems to be um, an increased expectation of near perfect data, um, near perfect um, compliance and the ability with hindsight or, or to act with the benefit of hindsight, but without actually having the hindsight. Um, and so really sort of understanding at that fundamental level, are we getting the right information? Um, how do we best position ourselves to make sure that we are um, doing what the, the shareholders and our regulators expect of us um, in imperfect circumstances? We, we three are litigators. I, I get the sense, Bryony, you, you may you may have a view that increasingly, gradually, um, our client base is involving us uh, in mapping risk and preventing risk prior to the risk crystallising. Uh, your, your specialism in particular, that would be necessary. Is, are you seeing that trend? Oh, absolutely. I mean, from an AML perspective, um, Austrac as the regulator has been very clear for a while now that a, a solid risk assessment is ground zero. I think that's how they'd see it, that without a fully mapped risk assessment, you can't sort of um, make sure that your controls management is properly in place. But I think that same concept is extrapolated out um, much more broadly than, than my direct area. Um, and so the focus now is on um, real risk mapping at a tangible level, making sure that everything things been identified, that there are the right levels of controls in place. And that requires a lot of understanding at a detailed level of the organisation and real buy-in to test um, and challenge what needs to happen in terms of both detecting risks and preventing them. And more and more, I think that's going to be a focus area that um, everyone, um, including on the sort of non-compliance legal side of the fence, will need to get involved in. And staying with your specialism just for a minute, which to, to a non-specialist in the area looks like it, it, it uh, attaches to the S and the G a fair bit. Um, is that, are we seeing, um, we're seeing active regulators, uh, or all of our regulators seem to be more, more active. What's the environment for AML CTF risk looking forward? Uh, what, 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 what trends are you predicting that we'll observe in that space? Look, I think, um it will continue. We know that um, Austrac as a regulator has been increasing um, in speed and in increasing in its ability to go after um, a variety of um, corporates at the same time and use different tools in its toolkit. I think the focus will continue to be on risk, 
but it will also, um, and, and the quality of, of, of process documentation, um, but it will also focus more and more on different types of industries. Um, so you're starting to see, you know, you've had financial services, gambling um, entities, you'll start to see entities from all different types of, um, of, of the corporate landscape being tested and being um, called to account. Obviously, from a digital perspective, you know, they'll start to focus more on crypto. Um, but I also think what's interesting is you're not just seeing the regulator now, um, and we are starting to see sort of consistent with themes overseas, um, individual um, complainants seeking to test whether corporates owe them duties. Um, to comply with their financial crime obligations. And I know that that's rolled out in other, in other areas as well where individuals are testing to, to see whether these um, regulatory um, risk and compliance standards are something that they personally have a right to insist upon. Aoife, can we turn to your specialism for a moment? Now you are in addition to being a complex general litigator, you also look at class action and product liability issues. Uh, I'm interested in how you see the developments in that space because it does seem to me that maybe products liability is having a little bit of a renaissance, possibly to the detriment of our client base. So maybe you can comment on that. Sure. Look, I think there are really three, it's sort of a perfect storm at the moment and there are probably three key factors just to call out that are relevant and to the development of this area. The first is around the complexity of products. So that has continued to evolve and we are now dealing with really, really complex consumer products that we're all using on a day-to-day -day basis. And they straddle sometimes different regulatory regimes. So if we think about a watch, for example, that's tracking heart rate, that's obviously serving two very different purposes and attracting the attention of different regulators. So there's that complexity piece from a regulatory perspective. There are also just enhanced regulatory expectations with respect and public expectations with respect to the safety of products. And we're seeing various developments in that space in Australia at the moment. Um, then in the class action space, we're seeing a regime which is very open to both an increase in volume of class actions, but also a very shifting landscape in terms of the nature of the class actions um, that are now popping up. And so things like the availability of contingency fees in Victoria and potentially the availability of contingency fees in other jurisdictions um, in the short to medium term, I think will also impact the likelihood of these class actions cropping up in other jurisdictions. On that, Eva, the funding industry traditionally hasn't been uh, enthusiastic about complex products claims. I guess some of those claims involve difficult science, etc. But as you say, now we've got contingency fees in one jurisdiction, the possibility that Attorney General Dreyfus will expand that mandate. And so more firms able to take on greater risk across a portfolio, maybe they'll look to that area as real estate that hasn't yet been fully sort of populated. So I think there are a range of factors which are impacting the third party funders, uh, Reticent, traditional reticence to fund these particular class actions and the impact that contingency fees will have in that particular space. So traditionally there was perhaps some reluctance from a reputational perspective for third party funders to get involved in those particular proceedings where there may be an impact on group member recovery. And there was also um, 
perhaps a sense that these were well-fought, heavily defended class actions, expensive to run and difficult, as you said, from a, an expert evidence perspective. Rani, I wanted to turn to you on a, a slight pivot to a different topic. When we were speaking with the President of the Court of Appeal, Her Honour Justice Ward, she mentioned correctly, I thought, that the concept of commerciality is evolving in our market, particularly for litigators. And even if we were having this discussion five years ago about commerciality, that'd be a different discussion to the one we're about to have. I wanted to get your take on what you observe the meaning of commerciality is in our current market, particularly for litigators who who are responsive to risk as opposed to trying to, well, we do try to prevent it, but we're usually called when it arises. What does it mean to be commercial in the current Australian landscape? Is that a big enough question for good, you? Good question. <laughs> and I wish that I'd heard that discussion so I don't know what's been said before. Uh, look, I think in terms of what I take from commerciality, it is entirely consistent with my obligations as an officer of the court, which is to give clients something that is fit for purpose and that is practicable and that works for their organisation. And again, because I'm an AML uh, person, I need to look at what's appropriate for that business to work out what is going to best serve the needs of that business to identify, mitigate and manage their money laundering risk. And so I can't just give an advice in isolation. So from that perspective, commerciality is a good thing and entirely consistent with good lawyering because it means understanding the business and providing something that can be readily applied. I think where commerciality as a sentiment can be um, more challenging is when it's interpreted to be risk-taking and the sense that a commercial response or commercial advice is something that allows corporates to do what they want to do, even if it's not in the interests of those who the regulation is serving. So I think your starting question with what does commerciality mean is the right one because it's a term that gets bandied around all the time. And I suspect somehow as a shorthand for give us what we need. But from my perspective, commerciality means really give us what, what we need, not give us what we want. That, that, there's a lot of force in that with respect and, and it, that conversation reminded me of something we touched on earlier, which is commerciality now might mean, and maybe I'm biased in saying this, but it might mean involving your, your risk specialists, your litigation specialist, your AML CTF specialists, your product liability specialists um, in the front end of decision-making uh, when it would feel almost unnatural to have them I'm thinking in the context of shareholder class actions, when you're making the announcement involving your lit litigation team, uh, that, that, that also cuts two ways that, that can be seen as a little uncommercial, you know, more obstacles of a legal nature. But, but I think maybe post-Royal Commission in particular, the pendulum swinging towards... Look, I think you're right that when we're thinking about, again, commerciality um, in the context of preparing for a, a big action, preparing for a regulatory inquiry, whatever it is, uh, I'm sure that people would like to, uh, to have a clear view that that issue is being taken seriously and addressed, and of course it is. But 
big organisations have myriad issues going on and each issue has to be considered holistically. And part of that means bringing everyone together and making sure that everyone understands the different ways that a particular issue might hit and the different challenges that have to be solved for, uh, not just the immediate one ahead. So let me turn to you, Aoife, on a, an equally broad question, but of a different type. Uh, the looking at your area of specialism, in particular the class action regime in Australia, changing constantly the last 18 months have been not an area for someone who likes certainty. Um, I'm looking at the Victorian Law Reform Commission, the Australian Law Reform Commission, a parliamentary joint committee, new continuous disclosure laws, new funding regulations. Uh, it, it is hard to sort of understand where that landscape's evolving, add to that a new government. Uh, just stepping back from the detail for a minute, uh, what, how do you assess where the, is the Australian class action environment working effectively, it's obviously creating great risk for our client base. What does the future hold in terms of how it will continue to evolve? And I, look, I couldn't agree more. There's just been so much change over the last, particularly over the last 18 to 24 months. And I think looking ahead as well, we're obviously, as you said, dealing with a new government. We've spoken before about the likelihood or potential for contingency fees to be rolled out in other jurisdictions. And that's just one example. There are many different things that we are likely to see over the next 12 to 24 months. Um, as we adapt and respond to um, a new government. So there's sort of the procedural aspects that are particularly interesting. They have um, evolved significantly over the last little while, likely to continue to evolve. Um, and then there is some of the substantive developments as well, which equally as important, but in a very different category. And I think from, in terms of sort of step, thinking and stepping back and assessing, is it really performing the purpose that it was initially put in place for. I think for the most part, access to justice, et cetera, with some modifications, um, most people would say that um, it is where it needs to be, but it can also um, be improved. What is really uh, impacting clients, plaintiffs, courts at the moment is this issue with multiplicity. So we are seeing um, an ongoing issue with multiple class actions being issued against the same defendant or group of defendants. Um, very, very similar causes of action, if not almost identical causes of action in relation to the same subject matter. And that creates significant uncertainty, both for the target of the class action, but also for the defendants involved, it, it, but also for the plaintiffs involved in the class action, for the court, um, and for a range of stakeholders who are impacted by those particular issues. Um, and it's an issue that can take a significant period of time to resolve. So by the time the court has heard from each party, they have filed their materials, there are often sort of a round of submissions and hearings that need to be worked through before those multiplicity issues are resolved. And so we're typically seeing six to 12 month lags between the commencement of the class action and the resolution of those multiplicity issues. And to go back to Bryony's point in terms of commerciality and managing those stakeholder relationships, that can be really, really difficult when you're dealing with the uncertainty presented by multiplicity. And so, over the top of that, this litigation might be conducted in an environment where there's an associated regulatory investigation. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. May I ask you just finally on class actions to, to, to whether you think there's force in this? It seems like there's two big political or policy issues is, is probably the correct term emerging about 
is the system balanced? One, one is, you know, are we getting the right, to, to your multiplicity point, we've got multiplicity focusing in particular around shareholder class action. No undersupply of class action services there, but we don't see the class actions necessarily supporting social justice, environment might be moving, um, workplace relations is, is growing, but, but there's a concentration there. Not doesn't feel like the balance is there. The other balance is the recoveries, how much is going to group members, how much is going to those that promote them. These seem to be the big topics and maybe they need to be resolved politically. Is, is this fair? Yeah, and yes, and I think it's interesting from in terms of looking at the potential areas for reform that have been identified over the last little while. So things like the licensing regime for third-party funders, that has um, been focused on things like group member recovery and whether or not um, the regulation of funders will impact the outcomes for group members. But there are a range of factors that feed into that question, and it's not necessarily the licensing regime that is likely to have that ongoing impact. There are a range of factors that feed into that. So I think there's a mix of um, reform from a political perspective, as well as practitioners and the courts all sort of constantly keeping abreast of how this is evolving. Um, are there opportunities for these issues to be clarified or simplified? Um, and how can we ensure that the process is as transparent as possible for those group members who are involved in the proceedings? I'm on a roll with asking big questions, so I'm going to ask you a final very big one for both of you, which is this. Um, and I know you well enough to say that not, not only do you represent um, an enormous part of our current practice, but together, if I may say, you are, you are representative of the future leadership of our firm and therefore a big part of the future of our profession. It, it's obvious that we are not where we need to be as a profession, maybe symbolic of other sectors on questions of, of representation and diversity. Uh, and the last 24 months have been full of examples of that. Um, I want to ask you both, um, how, what do we, how do we face the challenges of ensuring that our profession, our firm, uh, is representative of the communities that we work in? What, what, how do we get to a point where we are more representative and diverse? Is that big enough? It's a small question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Look, it is, it is improving. I think that is the good news, even when I think back in the time that I've been a partner. Um, so when I became partner, it was nearly eight years ago. And at the time, I was the first person ever to be promoted whilst working part time. And it was a big deal. Now, I don't think that would be a big deal at all. And I don't think that question would arise for consideration. I also think that in the time that I've been a partner, I've seen numerous great female partners come through our group, including Aoife. And so when we're sitting around a table, the diversity is there. And I know I'm just talking about gender and of course there's uh, multiple types of diversity that are relevant. But I've seen the effect that that's had in terms of the energy around the table and the ideas that are being put forward. And it makes a huge impact to have a balance of views in the room. And once you get that tipping point, that continues to build momentum. So I've really seen that in the, in the time that I've become partner, in the time that I've been dealing with clients, you see it there too. If we're sitting in court now, if we're sitting watching an expert panel, if we're watching a training session, we notice if the diversity of the panel isn't where it should be. And not just the women who have been raising the point 
junior people notice and call it out to us. So I think that there, there is a real change and it's exciting. That's not an answer to how we, how we go forward other than to say that you know, we keep going forward by putting people into prominent positions that come from a diverse range of background, backgrounds and empowering them to make decisions so that we are getting that snowball effect. And Aoife, do you, do you have a perspective from your vantage point, a, a newer entry into the ranks of partnership, but, but uh, no, no less uh, impressive? So to, to tell me what you see in, the, in that space. Look, I, I agree with Barney. There's certainly been a lot of improvement over the years, and I am very thankful and grateful for all of the um, females who have gone before me and laid a groundwork in terms of making it normal to um, manage a career and childcare responsibilities and not feel in any way embarrassed or shy about speaking to colleagues about that. I think that's really, really important. And that goes also for men who are parents in the workforce as well, and encouraging men to take parental leave, supporting parental leave, because it's really sort of reinforcing that message that home responsibilities are sort of a shared responsibility um, across the couple. And I think we can really reinforce and support that in a workplace. Um, but you know, as to Bryony's point, obviously diversity is just one of many. Sorry, gender is just one of many different areas of diversity, and I think we just constantly need to foster and support an environment where people feel comfortable calling out and asking, you know, why, why is this not more representative of the general community? And I think it has such a flow-on effect, and is so important to ensure that the legal system is operating in this country in a way that's representing the interests of, of the community. With partners like you at the helm, I'm sure that we'll be able to <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> overcome these challenges. <laughs> I did want to say thank you. It's been, this has been good. We don't often get the chance to talk in this way, in an un unvarnished way. Thank you for being generous with your time like this and um, for joining this episode of On Just Terms. Appreciate it. Thank Thanks, you. Jason. Thanks, Barney. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.